On this episode of Trading Camp, we interview Markets and Mayhem. He details his 20 plus year journey in the stock market and shares his framework for staying profitable in volatile markets. This episode is brought to you by Kane Capital, a trading community over 20,000 strong featuring live alerts and educational content. Link in the notes to join for free today. It's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilled liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheel of dealing. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen, episode 25 of Trading Camp, Investing Like Champions. We have another monster guest on the podcast. Extremely excited to get into this interview. We have an individual who I've been following for quite a bit of time now, who is an extremely well-versed trader. And I know that he's going to have a lot of really good things to share with you guys, Noah, What's going on? How are we doing? What's going on, Alejandro? Um, I'm doing great. Exactly like you said. I'm super excited for this episode. You know, I'm here to learn personally in this episode, you know, just as much as our listeners. And so I think it's going to be really exciting. Absolutely. And that's sort of what I was talking about before we even hopped on the episode. I'm going to treat this episode as a way to learn myself. So Markets and Mayhem is our guest this evening. Markets and Mayhem, how you doing, man? Very, very excited to have you on. As I mentioned, I have been following you for quite a while now, and I've been able to take in a lot from what you tweet, what you say on Spaces. Um, You're very, very good when it comes to macroeconomic outlooks and just kind of taming the markets when others are, you know, taking in a lot of the mumbo jumbo, so to speak. But again, very excited to have you on, man. And I think we're going to have a really great conversation. Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks, Noah. Appreciate you guys having me on. It's an honor and a privilege to be here with y'all. And I enjoy the conversation uh, you know, that we had pre-show. And I'm looking forward to what we talk about here. Absolutely. So as we always do, I'm going to start by asking you about your background. So your trading journey is what's important to start off with because a lot of our listeners myself included, are interested in how you got into the markets. So everybody has their story. Everybody has that point in their lives where they got hooked, whether it was finance or the stock market more particularly. But I want to ask you, what got you into the stock market to begin with? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first off, you know, I was in a household where CNBC or other financial media were on TV, where you know, the Wall Street Journal and Barron's were regularly on the dining room table uh, where my dad was uh, an investor and was pretty immersed in the markets. And so that got me pretty interested at a young age. And so I've been working since I was 12, you know, mowing lawns, uh, fixing computers, doing other kinds of stuff just to earn some cash. And one day I asked my dad if I could just, you know, basically uh, collateralize, like, I'll give you some of my money if you could put some of your money into a couple stocks. And he said, sure, we'll, we'll give that a shot. He was excited that I was interested in the markets. And this was, you know, in the go-go late 1990s where uh, all kinds of insanity was happening with tech stocks. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. But nevertheless, I said, I'm going to, uh, you know, I want to get into 100 shares of Amazon and 100 shares of Yahoo. And I kid you not, they both nearly doubled the next day. And that got me pretty concerned because I'm like, wait, I've been looking at markets for a while and I don't know a lot about them, but I know things aren't supposed to double in a day. So I said, please sell them both. And that was my first trade ever as a teenager. And I, you know, I doubled my money and I knew this was not sustainable. Like there's no way that I could just go in the market every day and double my money. But I got lucky in that first trade and that got me really interested. So, you know, I took the funds and I did what kids do and I put it towards like a new car and uh, I started to uh, really learn more about markets. And it wasn't till maybe, um, 2005 that I really felt I had enough money and enough time to uh, to go out there and start trading more regularly. So I did. I started trading uh, futures and single stocks. That was kind of where I cut my teeth. And by 2006, I had amassed enough funds to start investing as well. And so you know, this all leads us into that 
perilous journey through the great financial crisis, which was uh, really where I started to learn just how fragile the financial system can be during a uh, crisis, during a bear market. So I traded throughout the great financial crisis. And, you know, one of the best calls I ever made uh, was seeing it coming. And I didn't know the great financial crisis was coming. But as a technician, what I saw was a double top in the S&P going back to, you know, 1999, 2000, all the way through 2007. And so in late 2007, I liquidated all my investments because I said, look, if it can't break above the top, then I'm just going to be a gentleman and get out of the way and it'll do what it has to do. And if it gets above there, I'll buy again. And if it doesn't, that's okay because I had held these things for long enough to have long-term capital gains. So I was sanguine with taking some of those gains off the table. And of course, it, it didn't get back there. It, it took many, many years to get back there, as we all know. But the great financial crisis unfolded. And it was a very interesting period of time because we really got to see the depths of the financial plumbing and just how broken parts of it were as well. So I kid you not, there were days I woke up and you know there were, there were uh, futures that were basically limit down in the morning. And you'd wake up and you'd look at the news and you'd look at what's going on. Like, oh, it looks like uh, IndyMac Bank failed. Looks like Bear Stearns is going to fail. Looks like Lehman is failing. AIG is failing. Like everything was in really bad shape. And the interconnectedness of all these different financial institutions and the leverage they had in mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations just sort of meant that it was like this house of cards. And the gust of wind, that deflationary gust of wind was blowing in and the cards were trembling and beginning to fall down. And that's what the financial system looked like. And it was really quite a wild ride. I mean, you know, people would think, oh, it's easy to just short in a bear market. It's not easy to just short in a bear market because you have these face ripping rallies. You'd have days where the Fed would come in and intervene and the market would be up five, six percent after in the morning being down the same. So it was a really like the, the volatility was just extraordinary. I mean, I know. This is kind of prescient because the start of this year is similar to 2008 in some way, as in the volatility, in the kinds of smashes and rallies that we've seen. Uh, so it's it's an interesting parallel. But nevertheless, you know, going through that experience as a a younger trader really shaped my views on markets. That you can't take anything for granted. That you can't necessarily assume that the financial system is just going to take care of itself. A lot of generational wealth was destroyed in that great financial crisis. And a lot of people capitulated and liquidated and never really got back in uh, and, and lost a ton of money. So you know you got to kind of see also this idea that you just buy and hold forever and everything just goes in your favor kind of went out the window for a lot of people at that time because you, know, you had some of these things going down to levels that they hadn't seen since the dot-com bust or even earlier, basically taking out a decade of gains in a matter of months. So you know, that that kind of set my expectation that, yeah, you know, stocks generally go up, the indices especially generally go up, but you can have these violent dislocations and sometimes they can last well over a year. And, you know, the reason I bring that up and I focus on it so much as well is because I feel like a lot of folks that are trading the markets right now haven't actually experienced a real bear market in 2018 and 2020 really were not bear markets. They were more of corrective episodes. Um, and I think that's something that we should, you know, as students of the market, whether we're investors or traders, go back to and explore because that's what it looks like. Same with the, you know, same with the dot com bust and the bear market that followed that. That's more of a realistic bear market. And what I mean is they can take a long time, they can go a lot lower than people think. And there is no shortage of false hope rallies along the way towards that eventual uh, capitulative bottom that occurs well after a lot of people think. And it usually happens at a time where the news flow is all doom and gloom, and we just want to lock ourselves in a bunker rather than actually pay attention to what's happening in the market. And so, you know, the other thing I learned is that the narrative machine that is the financial media generally has it wrong. They generally don't know what's going on. They're reporting what they're seeing. They're trying to make headlines out of what's happening in the market without necessarily having the wherewithal to make those observations. So I also found that following price, following technical action, following order flow, which sectors were in favor was a much better way of getting a gauge of what's going on in the market than you know turning on the TV or reading the headlines. The, the news could be helpful to shaping your view, but it should be one very small part of the total picture. So you know, for me as a trader, I think I, 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 you know, I won't say I enjoyed the great financial crisis, but I wouldn't have uh, started my journey without it if I had to go and do it all over again, because it really shaped a lot of very important views that I have on the markets, on managing volatility, on what bear markets look like. And, and the reason I mention that is what we're dealing with now feels a lot like the beginning of a bear market. It may not be. It could be something different. It could just be a rather protracted and violent correction. But it's among some of the worst corrections we've seen 
in a while. The start to this year, uh, 2022, has been rather violent to the downside. Just a couple days ago, the NASDAQ was in a technical bear market. And the kind of counter-trend rallies that we see that just get faded right back down have those same hallmarks as well. So that's something that... um you know, I, I've been keeping my uh, keeping my eye on because it's like the past that I experienced is starting to have more bearing in the present that we are now. Right. That's a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you is that I feel like a lot of people overestimate or um, underestimate rather, kind of like that compound interest that comes with being in the markets for so long, right? Like when you first start out, you are learning things very quickly. And so like Alejandro will tell you, and you know, I would say the same, I know significantly more about how the market works than a year ago, but I'm still nowhere near where I'm going to be in you know 10 years. And you're saying that you've been in the markets for 20 years. How has that compound interest of just being in the market that, that time um, you know, kind of helped you navigate the muddy waters that we're currently seeing right now? And then kind of on top of that, you know, you mentioned that a lot of younger traders have not really been through bear markets. I've been trading personally for four years, and I really haven't. Um, you know, like you said, outside of basically twenty, um, basically twenty twenty, and this episode that we're in right now, I really haven't seen a bear market. This is one of the worst that it's been. And I think at the bottoms we were down what twelve percent, not even in, in um, the S and P, not even really anything crazy. But at the same time, you do have you know tech valuations essentially making a similar correction to what they made in the 2000s with a lot of them down 60, 70, 80%. Some of the large caps are still getting held up, but a lot of the growth names really have been, you know, pretty much cut in a third if not a fourth or lower. And so, um, you know, even though the large caps haven't really sold off to that point where we've got um, you know, real blood in the streets, Apple is still okay, Amazon is still, you know, doing all right. You know, how would you kind of approach the fact that a lot of these names are still extremely, extremely beaten down, particularly in growth? But like you said, when we are in a bear market, you know, it's very hard to tell, you know, just because something's low does not mean that it can't go lower. And so how do you kind of approach that? Yeah, sure. So a couple things that I'll bring up that I think are are useful guideposts to managing these kinds of markets. The first is that there's different phases in a cycle, right? And so we are in the, the late to end stage of this credit cycle. And it is my belief that because we didn't really have a bear market in 2018 or 2020, that this bull market's 13 years old. Actually, this month is like its anniversary. And so that's a long time for a bull market. A bull market typically lasts five or seven years. So that's another thing to take into consideration. Then let's go back to the beginning of this bull market. In 2008, 2009, you know, when things were really coming unglued, the Fed was, was slowly but surely starting to throw everything but the kitchen sink at the market. They did emergency rate cuts. They uh, cut to zero. Clearly, that wasn't enough. And then Bernanke started to invoke some of the uh, ideals that he had written down. You know, when he was, uh, he did a, a, a dissertation on the Great Depression and basically some ideas of what could have been done differently. And he started to put some of those ideas into effect. So one of them was quantitative easing. And, you know, even though he told the Congress that he wasn't monetizing US debt, really, that's what quantitative easing does. And it also liquefies the financial system and, and in a very, very meaningful way. In fact, there's a strong positive correlation between. Um, the aggregate amount of central bank liquidity and its velocity and and the performance of equities in particular more risky equities. So you know in the earlier part of this cycle, and I could say at the beginning of COVID, we kind of got reset to early cycle for just a minute because we had this literal wall of like eight trillion dollars of central bank liquidity flooding into the markets. It put a bid under everything, and it made uh, post April 2020 all the way through early 2021 kind of like the easiest time to trade in human history because you could pretty much be wrong and still be right. You know, even if you got on the wrong side of a trade, it would eventually get back into your favor on the long side, and uh, you could get out break even or even with a profit. And that engendered a lot of very poor behavior. Now we're at the point where the velocity of that central bank liquidity is is threatening to go negative, where we're seeing margin compress, which means the amount of uh, speculative betting that's going on in the market, people are rolling out of that because they see rates going higher. And we're at the point in in the credit cycle where different parts of the market are favored. So you know the parts of the market that were favored early cycle, like tech, like growth, uh, they're they're just what are considered to be more speculative assets. And that matters because now we have a time where the Fed is saying, we're going to bring up rates. And they've done so much sentiment management that actually the credit markets and the treasury markets have already significantly tightened financial conditions over the last several months. And so that puts this stuff even more out of favor. And the reason for that is, you know, you have other areas of opportunity where you can make money 
and not take the same level of risk. So money is going to places where there's free cash flow in the here and now, where there's earnings in the here and now that are growing. Companies that uh, can survive a higher cost of capital, as is being imposed by financial markets and the Fed, and they're moving away from more speculative assets, especially as real rates start to go more positive, which basically means that in some places in the um, in the uh, fixed income markets, you can actually get a real positive fixed income adjusted for inflation, which wasn't true for quite a long time. It's part of the vehicle of financial repression that creates the Tina trader. There is no alternative. Well, there are alternatives beginning to pop up, and people are starting to see that as time goes on, there may be more and more of those alternatives. And you look at the concentration of wealth in this country, it's mostly in the hands of older generations. So they're at the age where they really shouldn't be taking so much speculative risk. So I think there's a number of factors that are working against growth. And uh, you know, you mentioned the, the mega caps and the large caps. I would say, you know, for now they've been relatively resilient, but most of their charts look abysmal. And we've had some some serious casualties there. If we look at Facebook, it's it's down, you know, pretty significantly. It's down about 40% now from its all-time high. And that has, in my opinion, I've got a lot of pushback about this, but in my opinion, it's a broken business model. And it's one that, that there's going to be a lot of trouble trying to reemerge as this meta company when they have literally no edge in the metaverse whatsoever. So I do think that we have this consternation that's going to start to appear for any company, regardless of its size, if they start to tell investors, we're going through a rough patch. We're not necessarily sure where our growth is going to come from anymore. And that's what Facebook said. And there's no certainty that some of these others might start to say similar things. Amazon, you know, without the Rivian appreciation, probably wouldn't have had such a great last quarter. And so I do think it's important to look at this as a rolling correction. And the, the reason I say that is this all started in February of 2021. We had this enormous sort of rally in, in just about everything you can imagine, including the most speculative stuff like SPACs, you know, unprofitable uh, tech. And, uh, and Chinese tech and biotech and other things like that. And you'll note that in mid-February, all that started to roll off in the, in the smaller components of speculative assets. And then as we got through the year of 2021, we saw the velocity of central bank liquidity or the rate at which stimulus was entering the system really drop off year over year. And that correlated with more and more of these speculative assets all the way up to the mid-cap tech and growth and so forth really starting to roll over. And then into the end of the year, we started to see larger caps and even mega caps starting to come under greater and greater pressure. So if I if I was to step back and say anything about this, I'd say it's been a rolling correction going sort of up the pyramid to the higher quality stocks. And I don't think we're done yet. And I do think that the mega caps and the large caps, which were seen as safe havens, aren't. And that they could actually see a lot more pressure if indeed uh, this rolling correction or even this bear market, depending on what all plays out, uh, continues to move forward. And so going back to the original idea, the Fed and the amount of liquidity that them, the uh, Bank of uh, Japan, the European Central Bank flooded into the system for the last 13 years, they're now starting, in, in at least at the Fed, they're starting to talk about pulling back that liquidity. Other central banks are already starting to tighten meaningfully. So if that was part of the lifeblood that made this 13-year historic bull market possible, we, we also have to kind of step back and ask ourselves, what does it look like when that's not being pumped into the system? How do bonds get bid at auctions when the Fed was one of the biggest bidders? And how do stocks continue to float higher if the amount of liquidity underneath is starting to become constrained? So I would say we're in a perilous spot. If I had to take a step back again and kind of look at what we've seen um, over the last two days in the market, it still looks like a counter trend rally. It doesn't necessarily look that healthy to me uh, because you know we're not necessarily, in my view, seeing the kind of participation we would be on a conviction bottom. And we didn't see the kind of exhaustion of sentiment and positioning towards that bottom that indicated to me that it was you know an actionable bottom. Does that mean that I have a crystal ball and I could see the future? Absolutely not. I could be totally wrong about that. Markets are built to mystify and to you know confuse and to frustrate the majority of the participants the majority of the time. But nevertheless, if you look at where we are from January to now, it's very simple on an S&P chart. It's a series of lower highs and lower lows. And we have yet to break that pattern. So Mayhem, I want to pivot here and I want to ask you a little bit about strategy. So I'd like you to speak to the investors who were introduced to the markets in the later half of 2020 and 2021. The investors who tailed Kathy Wood and tripled their portfolios simply buying ARK. Uh, the investors who bought every dip in Tesla. And within the next week, they saw their position continue to raise higher and higher and higher. 
You mentioned this is a very, very different market that we're trading in, right? It's no longer a stimulated market. There are a lot of outside variables affecting uh, price action. For those newer investors or traders even who are a bit more risk on and looking to deploy cash, right? We'll say somebody who's uh, in Noah and I's age range, early 20s, more willing to take chances at these levels. What are some investment strategies that you would recommend to you know, take advantage of some of these cheaper names that we're seeing? But what I think can get a lot of people in trouble and something that we talk about a lot on the podcast and on Spaces is that just because something looks cheap does not mean it won't be cheaper uh, in the near future, right? So there's that risk-reward aspect of, okay, there are all these growth names, as Noah mentioned, that are extremely beaten down. There are mega caps who reported extremely strong earnings that are off the highs significantly. So if you're looking to deploy cash and you know coming from an investment strategy right for the past two years where all you had to do was deploy cash whenever you got the chance and you saw your portfolio grow rapidly. What should that investor now be telling themselves and how could they kind of rewire their brains in order to position themselves more properly and manage risk more properly? Sure, that's a great question. And I think it's one that's on a lot of people's minds right now. And you know, the first thing I would say is that one of the things that is key to successful investing and trading, but isn't really readily embraced in the here and now because we have this sort of go-go era of short attention spans and thinking things are going to bottom in a day and everything's going to have a V-shaped bottom and run 100% within the next week or whatever. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there is that kind of you know intensity. Um, I would say take a step back, look at these charts and tell me where the bottom is. If you can't see a reversal, a higher low and a higher high or you know a breakout uh, in something that's uh, been consolidating for a long time, you know if we're lucky enough to find something going sideways rather than down, in either one of those situations, you need to find a price pattern that indicates that the trend is your friend. There's absolutely no reason to go chasing something that's going lower just in hopes that we're smarter than the rest of the market and we found the bottom. In fact, most of the time, Searching for the bottom and searching for the top is a futile exercise. For traders and investors, it's about capturing the bulk of the move. And that starts with the trend being your friend. So you look for an opportunity to get into something that is breaking out of its downtrend. It's putting in a higher low and a higher high. It's starting to break above some of these key averages. If you're using moving averages or if you're using supply and demand zones, it's breaking above some of these key supply zones. So it's starting to show resilience. It's starting to show greater institutional participation volume is beginning to increase. And maybe there's some macro tailwinds and fundamental tailwinds that are adding into the technical picture so you can validate what you're seeing in that thesis. That would be where I begin to deploy capital. We don't have really of yet uh, in most of these uh, a, a lot of reasons. Like If we're looking at tech and growth, there's not a lot of reasons to get involved here. There's not a lot of things that appear to be a turnaround. Now, you can go to other parts of the market And you can see parts of the market that are actually pretty resilient here. Like if you're looking at the more defensive parts of the market, utilities uh, and and some parts of the staples and even some of the more aerospace defensive sectors, you know, you can see pretty good relative strength versus the S&P over the last three or four months. Now, why do I say relative strength versus the S&P? Because what I'm literally doing is I'm taking them both and I'm doing a ratio chart on stock charts and saying, okay, what does XLU versus SPY look like? What is XLP versus SPY look like. And if I see outperformance of a sector ETF versus the S&P 500, what I'm really seeing is that sector is outperforming the S&P. So institutional money is going into that sector. And at that point, once you identify sectors that are in favor, you can start to look at the strongest players in that sector that have the best charts, the best balance sheets, the best potential, and get involved with those plays. That's how I like to do it because what I'm trying to do is not fight the market I'm trying to be alongside the institutional participation where those rotational flows are going. And is anyone going to get excited about buying, you know, McCormick or 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 buying Dominion Energy or Verizon or anything like that? No, they're not going to get excited about it. I don't blame them. It's not very exciting. But it is a place where institutions tend to hide their money towards the end 
of a financial cycle. These are end cycle plays. They are showing impressive relative strength. We're seeing some of the later cycle plays, the mid cycle plays, like financials rolling over, energy starting to lose its footing. Materials, uh, they have the, the highest institutional allocation in history. So they're a little lopsided on that trade. And they're starting to roll over a bit as well. So I think it behooves us as investors and traders to really pay attention to where the money is going and where it's flowing out of. I also think we shouldn't limit ourselves as to what asset classes that we're willing to participate in. I think it's important to consider overseas markets. Latin America, Peru, Brazil have had some of the strongest starts this year of any international market. They're up double digits, which is, you know, that's a, that's a nice place to be versus the S&P, which is down double digits even still. Uh, and then we can also look at trends that are constructive in commodities. And there still are constructive trends in commodities. When I look at uh, corn, when I look at soy, when I look at platinum, um, and when I look at some of these other commodities, even natural gas, there still seems some potential for further upside. Now, obviously, you know, there's no crystal ball in any of this, but what I'm talking about is essentially systematic trend following. And, you know, if you want to get really into the weeds on it, there's ways to create back tested signals that can give you an opportunity to really maximize your risk and reward and know where you should be putting your stop, what kind of percentage move against you means it's time to get out versus it's just noise on the chart. So I would say for, for everyone out there that had an easy ride, you know, it's time to up our skill set. It's time to get a little more sophisticated. It's, it's, I, you know, I hate to say it, but it's basically time to put our big boy pants on and start being much more discerning, much more detail oriented investors and uh, looking at things through, you know, the, the lens of fundamentals, macro and trend following technicals to get a better opportunity to generate alpha or at least harvest beta in this kind of a market. I want to kind of reiterate one of the points that you made there in the middle. It's something as simple as, you know, kind of overlaying these different um, sectors of the market and overlaying them with the S&P 500 and seeing what's outperforming, what's underperforming and using that as a signal of where institutional money is flowing. Like that is something that I feel like so many people just completely ignore and they just particularly for us in in our discord, we do trade on a shorter time frame. And so it's like there's one side of the coin that says, you know, if you can trade the same names um, over and over and over again, you'll be able to, um, you know, understand the personality of these stocks, which is going to help you catch some of those moves. But the other side of the coin is there may be an easier route, you know, kind of elsewhere. And so personally, I'm not somebody who loves to jump into trading just names that I've absolutely never seen before. And this is not in terms of like investing long term. This is more of like trading on a day to day basis. What's your framework? How do you kind of approach that? And seeing these names that you maybe have never even heard of, but seeing that they're showing relative strength and maybe taking a flyer on, on some names like that. Sure. So the first thing I do is I like to identify what's in and out of favor. Uh, relative strength is one of the measures that I like to use for that. Then when I find the sectors that are in favor, I like to drill down and find the strongest, uh, the strongest players in that space, looking at their charts, looking at their fundamentals, um, looking at uh, you know the management team, do I feel confident in them? And then starting to scale into positions rather than just going all in at once. So I'm not trying to tell myself I'm smart in the market. And if I'm looking at an uptrend, I'm trying to buy in at each validated lower, uh, uh, basically each validated higher low, right? So you see something pull back, it starts to run again. Maybe it's on a neat trend line. Maybe it's following an average. Maybe it's uh, working off of uh, you know supply demand levels. But I'm basically trying to buy in as that trend is validating itself, but consolidating. And I build a full position and I monitor that full position. And I, what I do when I'm actually buying something is I model price action over a five or 10 year period and try to get a sense as to volatility so I can set my trail stop accordingly because I don't want to just get out in, in, in noise of price action. But if the trend does appear to be turning against me, uh, then I'm, then I want to have, uh, my trail stop get me out. So I calibrate the percentage of the trail stop based on the volatility of the instrument and what tends to be trend changing downward moves. So it means you have to have a little bit of appetite for risk, but it also means that you, you hold on to these things until they're no longer in that same trend. So that's, and that's a technique that you can use, whether it's a stock, a future, you know, a, a bond, a currency, you know, it's the same kind of technique in terms of the trend following component of it. But what's different is that every asset class, every stock has a different personality. And so it behooves us to get to know the personality of that asset class or that stock so that we can calibrate our trend following system to it. And the way that we do that is through back testing, right? So there's various providers that have backtesting tools. I tend to use TrendSpider. I'm starting to work on my own Python code to build my own backtesting environment that can do some execution as well. But in essence, 
you know, once you start to learn what what some of these triggers are, maybe it's a Bollinger Band breakout, maybe it's a, a relative strength versus S and P breakout, uh, maybe it's something that you're seeing, you know, where you have a moving average cross. Although I don't tend to really use those very much, but there's there's a lot of different signals that you can use for entry and exit on these trend plays. And so I tend to be pretty systematic because I don't want to be emotional about my trades, right? And I know it's tempting for every investor to fall in love with the companies that they invest in. Oh, we're so smart. Look at this management team. Oh, they're so brilliant. I'm going to hold this thing forever. It's going to be a 10-bagger. But everything can change in a heartbeat. You can get one bad earnings, or you can have a scandal, or the CEO steps down, or whatever. And we have to be willing to just jettison baggage that isn't working. So on the other side of it, I'm very um, regimental about cutting things that aren't working. I like to cut losers rapidly when my system is saying you know it's not working, or when I'm seeing something that tells me it's a broken story. And I like to ride winners until they're not working. So I try to take the, the the approach of basically capturing the bulk of the move if there is still a move to come. I think that's the most important part of trend following. Remember, as a trader or an investor, we're doing the same thing. We're just trying to capture the bulk of the move. At the end of the day, that's how we try to maximize our consistency and the amount of capital appreciation that we get. So trading the trend to a lot of market participants who are our age, as we talked about earlier, those who got involved in the markets within the past year and a half or so, trend trading is simply buying a dip as you know, you're know you trading uh, in an uptrend, making higher highs followed by higher lows, right? Because we're now trading in what is a confirmed bear market, we talked about this earlier, how there are these sharp and violent bear market rallies. We saw this today, the past couple of days. Today is March 16th, 2022. We've seen um, a bit of a short squeeze episode. And because it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of, okay, we've had two consecutive green days in the market. Is this the bottom? Are we going to trade higher? Am I now following the trend or is buying puts trading against the trend? How are you able to identify trend? Is it based off of multiple timeframes, um, the moving averages? And once you identify a trend, how are you able to identify that that trend itself is broken and that Obviously, you you talked about you know using those trailing stops and making sure that you're ensuring that you're capturing the bulk of the move, but to protect yourself against making the wrong decision, what are the steps you take to identify which direction that trend is actually going in? Sure. So that comes back to uh, a couple things. I mean, first, it's really important just for everyone to know how to read a chart, and you can take all the indicators off a chart and just look at price action over various timeframes. I prefer daily and weekly for most of the trends. I mean, obviously, you can look at 4-hour and hourly and 15-minute for day trading. And I do a fair amount of that for ES, for for S&P 500 futures. But on a longer-term view, where you're really going to see those signals matter more, uh, the most simple rudimentary metric is, is it's making a, a lower high and a lower low? And is it continuing to do that? If it is, it's in a downtrend. And so for the S&P 500 right now, I think we can reasonably say it remains in a downtrend, but it looks like it's maybe consolidating a little bit here. So we want to see what the next move looks like. We really want to see whether or not the S&P is able to take out that key 4,400 level and break higher. If it is, we might have to reevaluate where it is we are in this trend. On the other side of it, you know, if you look at supply and demand zones, you can see there's a whole lot of supply above where the S&P 500 is right now. So there's some formidable resistance based on transactional activity in the index just over like the last year. Uh, so that's one way that you could look at it, just very basic price action oriented. Another thing that, that people tend to use are moving average crosses. I'm not a big subscriber of this, but some folks really like to use the EMA 5.8 cross or the uh, EMA 21.8 cross as, as indications of trend. Um, I favor Ichimoku Cloud as one way of looking at trends. So you can actually just see where you are. Are you below the cloud? Are you above the cloud? Are you in the cloud? If you're below the cloud on that time frame, you're in a downtrend. If you're in the cloud on that time frame, you are in a neutral trend. And if you're above the cloud on that time frame, you are in an uptrend. And so for most of 2022, uh, the S&P has been below the Ichimoku cloud. It's a system that a Japanese journalist who followed markets very carefully developed, I believe, in the 1950s. And it's been a pretty robust technical analysis framework. I wouldn't say that it's the only one that people should use, but it's a nice, very easy to pop on the chart kind of heuristic to, to see where you are. And then if you get more into the nitty gritty, if you're going more into the weeds, you're talking about you know using back testing systems, having signals. 
that are generated based off of, um, you know, for example, uh, you might find that Bollinger Band breakouts can be the beginning of an uptrend. So you'll see a Bollinger Band, and a lot of people look at Bollinger Bands as like the top of the band is 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 resistance, the bottom of the band is support, and you trade off those. And you know sometimes that works, but really the most interesting part of Bollinger Bands for me is when they're breaking out one way or another. So if you have a situation where Bollinger Bands are compressing, which means you're in a low volatility price regime, that's called a squeeze. And then you have a breakout, which means that the price breaks either to the upside or to the downside from that squeeze. And that usually indicates the formation of a new trend. Obviously, it depends on what asset class you're trading. It works pretty well for things like Bitcoin, S&P, NASDAQ. Um, so that's one measure that, that one can consider is looking at those Bollinger Band squeeze breakouts when you see... And we did see a, a kind of um, a moment like that in the S&P to start the year that broke us lower. Uh, and that was another indication of the trend change that was happening. So I would say the best thing to do when you're identifying a trend is to spend some time studying that asset and, and go back as far as you're comfortable with, whether you're using you know just charts or you're using automated analysis through a backtesting uh, strategy. You know, you go through as much price data as you can to try to identify what signals that asset gives you in terms of changing trend. But you don't have to be fancy. You can literally just look at price action and get a very good idea as to the health of that trend. So for me, like if S&P broke above um, 4,400 with strong volume and it closed the day or even week there, I'd say, okay, it's probably time to start reevaluating where we are in this trend because we're probably neutralizing the downtrend, at least short term. Doesn't mean that we're in an uptrend yet. We'd probably have to climb well over 4,500 to get to that point. But it does mean that we're starting to get to a point where you know bears could become a more endangered species if, if that uh, price action continues, if indeed a lot of those bears are trapped short at much lower levels. So I think it's also important in this market to look at, um, to look at options. And uh, that, that has been a big feeder in some of the upward price action that we've been experiencing of late. There was an inordinate amount of put skew on the S&P or the SPX index options. And what that means is there's just a lot of institutions that are hedging. And as they hedge, uh, it creates these flows, these Vanna and Charm flows. It also creates a propensity for as price moves further and further away from those puts that a lot of market makers are essentially covering those uh, that exposure they have. So if you're selling a put contract, right, you're short that put. If you're short a put and the put appreciates in price, then you're losing money. So what market makers do to hedge their delta or their exposure is they'll sell futures Based on the delta of the contract that they're selling, so if they sell, you know, 100 puts with a 40 delta, they need to make sure that they have that 40% exposure short S&P for those same contracts. And then as that put gets further and further away from being in the money, and as time decays, you have Vanna and Charm flows that come in as dealers are correcting their hedging, so they're not overly hedged to the downside. And so a lot of the movement that we've seen over the past couple of days has been at least in part related to that as we approach a rather significant quadruple witching this Friday. I couldn't agree more. I have a, a quick question just about volatility that we're currently seeing um, in the markets, right? We saw a lower low put in on the S&P 500. I believe that it was February 24th. And the VIX actually never made a higher high on that move. The VIX obviously moves inversely with SPY. And so when SPY makes or the SPX makes a lower low, the VIX should make um, a higher high. I have, you know, just through a bunch of people much smarter than me on Twitter, been seeing that, you know, when we do have two volatility events kind of happening very close to each other. So the first one being January, that January sell-off after the Fed's minute, after the Fed minutes release. Um, and then the second one being February, volatility tends to underperform in that second one because people are better hedged. Um, and like you said, right, as as the um as people are buying puts in the in the the uh, market makers kind of have to hedge that can also have adverse effects on the market. How do you see volatility impacting the way that the markets move going forward here in the next several weeks? Because obviously we do have uh, a ton of different catalysts, right? We just got over one today with the Fed um, pretty much coming out as expected, raising interest rates by 25 basis points and pretty much leaving it on the table that they could you know, raise at any meeting going forward, pricing in about, I want to say seven or eight, if I'm not mistaken. So how do you kind of see that going forward, I feel like we're in a position where there are so many people that are, there are so many catalysts out there and people are really starting to realize that now that if we do see another move to the downside, how could it possibly be more volatile than what we just saw back in um, both January and February? Sure. So I think there's a couple of themes that we should look at for kind of understanding volatility. 
Um, and this is a very interesting topic, so I'm glad you brought it up. I like to say that we are in an environment where this is the new normal. And uh, Jem Carson, who's uh, who's a luminary in uh, market making, you know, he used to be a market maker. That's exactly where I got it from. Yeah, so he uh, he has referred to this environment as a leptocritic distribution of fat tail risk, both to the left and to the right. And I couldn't agree more with that assessment. I think he's a hundred percent spot on. And one of the reasons that he's cited is that there's so much option driven participation in the market, which implies that you don't just have leverage, but you generally have shorter time horizons. And so a lot of that option-based participation is, you know, from the retail side, it's buying equity calls and selling equity puts. And on the institution side, it's, it's really kind of the opposite. They're mostly buying puts at the index and ETF level. And so the more of that options activity we have, the more potential for volatility we have. And we've seen record amounts of option-driven participation by both institutions and retail. In fact, some of them, uh, on the, particularly on the retail side, have foreshadowed some of the worst market episodes that we've seen uh, for retail favorite stocks. Uh, two examples were February of 2021 and November of 2021, where we saw record amounts of retail equity uh, call buying and equity put selling. And that was basically getting as max long and as, as uh, euphoric about future price action as possible. And that usually indicates a sentiment extreme. And lo and behold, following both of those episodes, we had pretty significant routes, uh, the latter of which we're still really experiencing. So I'd say that the options-driven participation is a big part of it. The other part of it, however, is a lack of liquidity. And there's several kinds of liquidity that we're lacking that are a growing problem. So we have a lack of order book liquidity in the S&P 500 futures. That means that there's just less orders on the book on a day-to-day basis, which means that it takes less volume to move price more. And that's a big problem. This week, we've still seen, even today with this big move, pretty low volume, all things considered, which is not a good sign. The other part of it is that there's less liquidity flowing through the global financial system. So central banks are beginning to pull back. But even before they do, we've seen all of their sentiment managing jawboning heighten financial conditions. So you've seen a lot of pressure in high yield corporate debt. Uh, The spreads between high yield corporate debt and investment grade have blown out above 400 BIPs. So that's a level of stress to take note of. Above 500 is kind of like you're starting to flash a siren that real world economic impacts can happen. Employees can get fired. Plants can close down. It's you know the, the kind of forces that can drive us closer to a potential recession. Um, and so when you see a tightness of liquidity, when there's not a lot of liquidity in the financial system and in the volume of stocks traded and in the order books of futures, there's a negative correlation with uh, an abundance of liquidity and high volatility, which means there's a positive correlation with a lack of liquidity and high volatility. So you see it coming from both angles. You see it coming from options-driven participation and then a lack of liquidity throughout the financial system. And that's not a great combination. So what it suggests to me is really, unless and until uh, options-driven participation is reduced and or central banks around the world are starting to pivot to being a, a bit more on the dovish side, this volatility regime that we're in is here to stay. This is sort of the new normal. And quite frankly, this is not a whole lot different than how markets often operate. You, de- you definitely have long periods of corrections, uh, sideways gyrations, big price movements up and down. I mean, if you look at the history of the market from, say, 2009 to 2019, there were plenty of episodes that looked a lot like this. It wasn't necessarily quite as um, as as shaky as we're seeing now because there was still more central bank liquidity in the system. But suffice it to say, uh, there is a a sort of normalization of market pricing, of re-rating risk downward, of associating a higher risk premia, some of these more speculative assets because now their cost of capital is going up, their future prospects are diminished. So I think that for any for anyone that's looking at this volatility and saying, "Oh God, when does it end? When is you know when is the VIX going to be below twenty again?" I don't know that we have that kind of indication anytime soon. I think that we really need to be very careful because we're in an environment where this is probably going to get worse before it gets better in terms of volatility, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It means you're still flushing out speculative excess. You're still flushing out leveraged participants in the market, including people that are using too much margin. And you're starting to get to something that resembles, you know, a normalization from which we can build a base. So I would say, you know, it, we we have to see these flows change. We have to see 
less options driven participation from retail. Like, you know, you can come in and you have a green day like this and all the retail favorites are being bid up with near to the money, short dated calls. That means the euphoria is still there somewhere. People are still just casually buying the crap out of the dip and doing so with options that have to get into the money into a short period of time or they become worthless. So there's also a lot of emotion tied to that leverage, which means that things can whip the other way if price goes against those participants and they all exit at once, as, as we've seen. And just to give you an idea of how powerful that intoxicating options-driven participation is, going back to 2021, we saw these prolific rallies in Upstart, Cloudflare, Asana, Affirm, and they were almost 100% driven by that near-to-the-money, uh, close-dated option-buying frenzies one day after the other day after the other. So that was what drove a lot of those prices up. Tesla is another one where it's really been a leading component for price discovery there as well. And what happens when that's the leading driver of price discovery is you have this pockets of hot air and poor price structure and flows that once they reverse, market makers are removing their hedges by selling shares. So the path of least resistance becomes meaningfully lower. We're not seeing week after week after week of those same types of delta squeezes in the here and now, but we are seeing them episodically. And typically, they indicate that there's just too much positive sentiment in the market, and it's usually a fadable event. So I would say we need to see that kind of stuff stop as well. We need to see the reflexive dip-buying, gambling impulse really stop to show that we're at a point where sentiment has been exhausted to the downside. And so I think unless and until we see you know, options kind of dry up a little bit, especially from retail and, and central banks maybe start to pivot the other way, I think this volatility regime is here to stay. So MM, are you telling me that the Mara calls that I bought expiring Friday are screwed this week? <laughs> I bought them with five minutes to go left in the trading session. I, you know, I honestly have no idea. Bitcoin is starting to look... <laughs> Bitcoin is starting to look a little more constructive on the chart, but uh, on the other side of it, Bitcoin and other crypto are kind of hyper-speculative relief valves for excess liquidity, and we don't have that same excess liquidity anymore. So it's a great question. I mean, the Mara chart looks like it's trying to base, but uh, it does still look like it's in a pretty nasty downtrend here. It absolutely is. Yeah, I was I was just messing with you, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's really is what we're seeing, and um, that's kind of how I've been treating things. So. You mentioned um, the the like excess dip buying. So I was actually speaking with a buddy the other day, um, just talking about the markets. He um, he's actually a private bank analyst. He works for um, a large bank, and so he's like heavily involved with the markets, and he's buying stock um, at these levels. And we talked about you know fear and greed in the markets. It's something that's you know commonly comes up in conversation. I guess it was Warren Buffett who famously said, um, buy when others are fearful and sell when others are greedy or however it goes. The point being, I told him, well, listen, if you're buying, um, I, I don't truly believe that you're that fearful, right? I still think that there are a lot of people buying at these levels and there are a lot of people trying to time the bottom, so to speak. And I think that it's a very, very dangerous attitude to have, especially on Fintwit, uh, we see a lot of these larger accounts starting to at least um, insinuate that they're placing large directional bets. And I think that for the listeners and for those who follow um, some of these gurus, I think that people need to be very, very careful uh, because this is the way that I'm kind of seeing it is it's an opportunity for those with a large following to be the ones um, to look back in a couple months or so and say, hey, look, I told you so. So when you have somebody saying, um, you know, this is, you know, clear a clear by the dip opportunity, whether or not they're wagering large amounts of their own capital, you really have no idea. And for the new investor and the new trader who is infatuated with the idea of timing the absolute bottom and that idea of I told you so and looking back and you know following these guys who claim to know um, they know what they're talking about at all times. It's very, very uh, difficult for me to understand the concept of uh, buying at these levels, not only because, you know, obviously there's some opportunity here and I could be completely wrong, right? We could trade higher um, in the months to come and, you know, I missed the bottom. But my, my point being, 
absolutely nobody knows where we're going to trade from these levels, okay? And for those of you listening, and I hope that this conversation that we had uh, with Mayhem is able to really clarify this, we're still trading into the headwinds against the current, so to speak. There are a lot of variables and outside factors. We didn't even talk about the war in Europe. That's not even a a topic that we touched on during this podcast. But there are so many things affecting the markets to have the confidence to be able to say, these are the levels that we should be buying at and to be following somebody blindly. Like I said, a lot of people are going to come out of this either losing a following, but I think that most of these guys are basically just saying, look, if I tell people to buy down here or I tell people to short here and they make money, I'm going to be the hero type thing. It's just a situation, in my opinion, where people need to be very, very careful placing um, large directional bets. I don't think that the payoff is there by any means, even if you are correct, especially if you're trading options, right? With these super juice premiums and implied volatility through the roof, as you were just mentioning, the risk versus reward factor trying to time anything down here, it's just not there, at least for me in particular. Yeah. So I think it goes back to something. I mean, you hit on this here, you know. First, we don't know what they're actually doing with their money. Secondly, a lot of people that put out these bottom calls delete them when they're not right. So they can always be right because, oh, there's no history of me saying that was the bottom. Oh, now this is the bottom. No, that wasn't the bottom. Okay, this is the bottom now. And then eventually they could say, hey, I was right because look, I finally called the bottom the 12th time. I mean, I think that this is an exercise in futility. It's ego. What does it matter? You know, what, what's the point of calling the bottom? I mean, the first thing that I'll say, is that the majority of the people that I see out there that are obsessed with calling the bottom are are generally doing this for ego. They're not doing it because they want to be a good market timer. They're doing it because they want to be right and prove themselves to other peers and be validated by that and be rained with, you know, rained down with the praise. Oh, wow, you were so smart. Oh, wow, what a prolific call. Wow, you're like, you're like a prophet of the markets. But the reality is that the most successful traders and investors that I've ever met, and I've been fortunate enough to have some really amazing mentors over the years, they don't care about that. They also don't care about calling the top. They just want to capture the majority of the move and then move on to the next opportunity. And they also, as a result, don't get all beaten down emotionally when they're wrong. Because it's not about being wrong or right. If you're wrong, you cut your um, your loss. If you're right, you keep riding it. And that's it. You know, It's, it's, it's just more of a, a systematic approach. So my advice to folks out there that are you know, inundated by this, oh, this is the bottom or that's the bottom or you know, some random person is posting up a chart and it looks convincing enough. You have to decide for yourself. You really have to decide what works best for your capital, for your risk management. You shouldn't put your investments or your trades in the, in the hands of a total stranger, whether it's me or anyone else. It's all about your financial destiny and realizing your financial independence comes from being self-sufficient over time. You know, People like me can teach others how to be better traders and investors, but we can't hold their hands. And I'm not personally someone who like would run a, a shot calling service, right? I co-founded TraderAid and what we try to do at TraderAid is help investors and traders become more consistent, but we're not telling them when to get in and when to get out and every little detail because we want them to become more self-sufficient. We want them to be able to see those signals. And I think that for folks out there that are you know, following other people and hoping that they somehow nail it for them, be very careful. A lot of the best traders and investors are not sitting there on Twitter telling you every position they take, telling you when they think you know the 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 the, the all clear has happened. They're doing what they do in the background and they're sharing other other observations along the way. So I would say you know w- into the psychology of trading, the most important things are discipline, consistency, knowing your own risk tolerance so that you're never going to bed with a position on that keeps you up at night you know and having an idea as to what works for you so that you can amplify that consistency everyone has a different personality so like my trading style might not work for other people that are listening but they might find some elements of it that are helpful to improving how they trade so i think that at the end of the day we need to be very very careful out there no one has a crystal ball and anyone who claims that they do is probably lying Agreed. I love how you mentioned, you know, just being careful and, you know, understanding yourself as a trader, your risk tolerance. I think that's like one of the most important things. And you talked about TraderAid and how you guys, the intent is not to, you know, just hand people the keys necessarily, but you want people to develop their own strategies and develop into traders independently. And I think that's what's most important. And that's what we try to do as well on our Twitters and in our Discord. 
what a lot of people don't understand is following X and Y Twitter Furu is only going to get you so far. There are a lot of accounts out there that, yes, provide a lot of valuable educational information. Yours is one of the best, which is why I follow you, right? It's not for stock picks or I'm not interested to hear if you know you think this is the bottom or if you think I should be buying puts here. It's more so for myself, I want to be able to sharpen my tools as a trader. So guys, when you see a lot of information on Twitter, it's up to you. It's your responsibility to tell yourself, okay, am I going to use Fintwit as a device to help me in my trading? Am I going to go on every day online on your phone, whatever it is you do? Am I going to you know, limit myself to following accounts that are truly going to make me a better trader? Or am I going to wake up and hope that you know somebody tweets a ticker today and you know I can hop in and hopefully tomorrow I wake up to a 10x and I 10x my account? There are proper ways to do this. So really, I think now more than ever, right? Under these market conditions, we talked about it. There's so much garbage out there. Fintwit in particular is, uh, you know, all hunky dory when things are going well and everybody's buying the dip and small caps are ripping and you know the market is in flames. But under these more stressful market conditions, and that's really what it is, right? To so the average investor or trader. They're under a lot of stress because these are the particular times where there's fear, uh, heavily fear-driven market currently. The amount of volatility is keeping people up at night. As you mentioned, people taking overnight positions, uh, they wake up the next day and those positions go to zero. Managing risk is just so, so important. But basically, the main point that I was uh, trying to get to is that you guys need to be filtering the content that you're seeing. MM is a great follow. Um, I'll let you give your Twitter account when we wrap things up at the end. But there's a lot of beneficial educational content on Twitter. But again, just be very, very careful with who you're following. And as you mentioned, I think that anybody trying to call bottom or even you know calling for a significant downside, I think it works both ways, right? They're not necessarily working in your best interests. It's very ego-driven. And I think that They, you know, like I mentioned, are trying to look back in a couple months and be the guy that made the right call, right? But um, I think that traders who really do know what they're doing are sort of sitting on the sidelines, taking in as many variables and uh, interpreting as much data as they can daily and making decisions based on that, not just a couple of charts, posting them on Twitter and saying, look, SPY is going to um, 4,800. Right. And I, I think ultimately, it's also about personal accountability. I mean, I can't tell you how long uh, I've been on FinTwit, I think since 2010, and how many times I've seen people say, oh, well, you know, it's the bankers, and it's the hedge funds, and it's the algos, and I can't make money because of all them. And it's like, no, you know, zoom out, take personal accountability. The biggest enemy that we're ever going to fight in the market is going to be ourselves. And until we get a grip of that, you know, and have that level of personal accountability where we're not trying to farm out blame for a bad trade or investment, we're not going to get better as traders or investors. So I think that that personal accountability is a sign of also growth. And so, you know, for folks that are out there, uh, one thing that I would say is if you see an account and all they're doing is posting their winners all the time and they're just, they're just gain posting all the time, <laughs> that, that's an ego driven account. And I'm not, I'm not trying to slight anyone, but like I'm more impressed with people who talk about what their losers were, why they didn't work. And how they were humbled by it and trying to improve in the future than by someone who's posting their gains, which may not even be real. And I think that's a really important kind of quality differentiator. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of accounts where all they're trying to do is post educational content, analytical content, research, other kinds of thoughts on the market, not making these big, bold directional calls. And I, I tend to find that they have better quality uh, information for me to utilize to get a better full picture as to what's going on in the market. So that's the kind of accounts that I follow. Those are the accounts that I tend to surround myself with. And you know, I'm not going to tell anyone else how to run their Twitter experience, but if you want a better Twitter experience, you're typically going to find it uh, following that kind of framework. And you know, you can do really cool things on Twitter. You can go in and you can create a list 
And it can be a public list or a private list. You can categorize them. You can have your macro accounts. You can have your trading accounts. You can have your, your, your uh, fundamental analysis accounts. You can have your news accounts. And you can have different lists. So when you're looking for different types of information, you click into that list and you find the accounts that you've curated that get you that information. So you're not just you know diving into your feed and getting whatever is uh, out there that Twitter wants to show you. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned uh, people posting gains. So today... I posted, I had a red day. Um, so I've been posting my gains daily pretty much. Uh, I had a red day. I posted a screenshot. I got 11 likes on this tweet. When I post like a, a nice looking green day, I'll typically get around 50. I think there are a lot of people who are just sold on this dream of I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be the best trader and you know, I'm going to make a million dollars this year and it's going to be happy go lucky every single day. The great traders, all they do is make all this sort of money. But it's funny, you know, transparency on Fintwit in particular is it's not attractive, right? And you would think that a lot of people uh, would kind of flock to that. Like, here I am showing you the money I'm making, the money I'm losing. Like, listen, this is trading. Do I consider myself a good trader? Yes. Does that mean I'm not going to have red days? Absolutely not. It's the, it's, that's how the game works. So, I mean, I'm showing people exactly what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak. But a lot of people on Fintuit much rather see um, you know, these massive $50,000 to $100,000 days that I'll probably say 90% of the time aren't even real. Like They're probably paper trading. So that's another interesting point that you brought up. I mean, let's put it this way. If people were, were making a million dollars in a week, would they really be on Twitter telling the world about it? Like, hey, here, here's a target sign on my back. Come rob me. I mean, I, <laughs> I just don't see that. You know what I mean? It just seems like an exercise in futility and, and just flexing and, yeah. and ego-driven nonsense. So you know, bringing it back to, to the core of what we're talking about here, I think that a lot of folks who are trying to become better traders and investors should tune out from the noise. I hear a lot of people get discouraged, like, oh, I'm not having green days, like all these other people are having these crazy green days all the time. It's like, well, you know, that's probably not realistic. And and even if it is, you shouldn't hold yourself to the same standards that other people are trying to try, trying to achieve, especially if you're newer to the game, right? So the idea is to be humble, to be receptive, to always be a student of the markets. When we do get humbled by the markets, when we lose money, when we're paying a tuition. It's our opportunity to learn the lessons being taught by the market. No one else is going to teach those lessons to us. We have to learn them. Why were we wrong? What could have we done better? And one of the things that I want to, I want to also leave everyone with who's listening to this is an idea. For every trade or investment you make, you should have a system. That system could be as simple as a checklist that you're checking off various attributes to say, okay, I've qualified this as being a trader investment. I can check off all the, these check marks on my system and then put it in a log. So date, time, what were you buying? Were you buying a full position or scaling in as most people should probably be doing the latter? Uh, what was the thesis behind that? And then when you get out, the same thing on the other side of it, date, time, positions, what were you doing? Were you getting out of all of it once? Were you scaling out? Were you stopped out? Did you take a gain? And then when we review that journal over time, we can not only improve our system iteratively, figuring out where our weaknesses were and how we need to get better, but we can also start to look at all of these different trades that we had and understand kind of what our trading style is, what's working for us, what isn't working for us, and optimize and continue to optimize. And so, you know, a lot of folks kind of just want to do this by the seat of their pants, but the people that become more consistent, better traders are the ones that, in my opinion, are actually putting a lot more effort into the process, right? They're, they're really trying to be much more methodical. They're taking notes. They're reviewing that stuff later, maybe on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. And then they're taking that information to improve how they address the markets, how they manage risk, how they manage reward too. And over time, once you have that kind of a journal, it also builds your conviction because you know what works for you. So you're going to be more tempted to ride those winning positions without saying, oh gosh, uh, it's gone down just a couple ticks. I got to get out before I lose all my profit. Like Once you start to really learn what works and the personalities of the assets you're trading, you're going to have more conviction to be able to trade them and with greater amount of success. And the thing is, we're not like, and I just want to say something else, because the other thing about all these these win posts is it suggests that we're supposed to have this like 99% win rate. That is complete and total nonsense. 
Like, seriously, no one wins that much. And when they do, it's usually very small. Like, you, you, I have some of the best traders I've ever met have win rates below 50% and they kill it. They can have triple digit gains in a year. No joke. And it's because you're cutting your losers quickly and you're riding those 40% or whatever winners to capture the bulk of the move. And a lot of that comes through just disciplined, systematic trading and realizing when you lose something, it doesn't matter. You just move on, you go on to the next thing. Because the other cost that we pay isn't just our money on a losing position. It's the opportunity cost, the time that we wasted not taking on a winning position in its place. Yep. We honestly have a perfect example of that in our Discord with you know Money Mander. We had him on the podcast a couple of times, a good friend of um, mine and Alejandro's. This is somebody who's probably got the lowest win rate in the discord i would say but he when he does win he wins right he, he with a capital w right and so that more than makes up for the losses and then some and he's having probably one of the better years of you know the seven traders that we've got in the discord so that's just a testament to um exactly what you just said right and so we wanted to thank you for coming on this was honestly probably one of our best episodes so much knowledge dropped you know not even just for our listeners but for for me and Alejandro as well i'm sure that he would agree um thank you for taking the time out to to hop on and and spread your wealth spread your knowledge thank you so much you're welcome noah and and thank you and thank Al, uh, Alejandro for having me on i appreciate the opportunity and you know in closing i just want to say that for everyone out there if you're having a difficult time in your journey right now it's you're not alone there's a lot of people that are having a tough time and it, it's it's a time to step back and be reflective. And it's a time to upskill and learn that the last two years in the market were anything but ordinary. And you know, choppy sailing doesn't mean you can't make money. You can make money in a down market, you can make money in a sideways market, and you can make money in a market that's trending higher. It's just a matter of what kind of approach you take, whether you're being tactical and opportunistic with your allocation of capital, and whether you're you know, doing day trading or whether you're doing uh, swing trades on a trend basis, there's still opportunities out there all over the place. So don't get too discouraged. Don't give up on your journey yet. I know a lot of people are. I would say take a step back, take a break, take a breather. You don't need to be in the market every single day. And just kind of figure out what your goals are and and how you want to navigate this journey. But there's plenty of resources out there to help. So, you know, definitely keep your eyes open, keep your mind open and remain objective, remain a little bit more opportunistic than perhaps you were in the past. And remember that the trend is your friend. Thank you for those closing words. Really great stuff, man. Before we wrap up, where can people find you? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter as Mayhem number four markets, Mayhem for markets. Uh, I've got a YouTube. Uh, it's youtube.com slash C slash markets and mayhem. I've got a website, marketsandmayhem.com. And then I'm also the co-founder of TraderAid, and that's T-R-A-D-E-R-A-D-E.com, where we help uh, investors and traders become more consistent. We have courses, we have coaching, and we also have a subscription service where we share trade ideas, research, and educational resources. Awesome. And we'll be sure to link all that stuff in the show notes, guys. So make sure that you check that out. Markets of Mayhem, again, thank you so much for hopping on with us. This was an extremely solid episode. You shared a ton of information that's really going to help all of our listeners, as Noah mentioned. Uh, Noah, another awesome episode, and I'll see you next week for episode 26, bro. Absolutely. Have a great weekend, guys. Our content is intended to be used and must be used for informational purposes only. It is very important to do your own analysis before making any investment based on your own personal circumstances. You should take independent financial advice from a professional in connection with or independently research and verify any information that you find in our podcast and wish to rely upon, whether for the purpose of making an investment decision or otherwise.